Hello and welcome back to Chronicled, the history of Newcastle United. I'm Matt Ketchell, the Northeast Football App and Engagement Editor here at Chronicle Live. And this is episode four of our new history series. Episode by episode, we're walking through the history of Newcastle United. Last week, we covered 1893 to 1898. Newcastle joined the Football League along with Liverpool and Arsenal in the old Division 2. And it took them five seasons to stabilise and then finally gain promotion to Division 1, typically in unorthodox fashion. Today... For episode four, we're covering 1898 to 1905, leaving behind the Victorian era and entering a fruitful Edwardian era. As ever, I'm joined by Paul Joannou, Newcastle United's official club historian, the ultimate expert in Newcastle United history, and this is going to be a good one. Paul, take us back to the summer of 1898. Newcastle are preparing for top flight football for the first time ever. Did St James's Park need an upgrade to cope with the trappings of Division 1? It certainly did. Um, it was a, a big step for Newcastle United and they wanted to get ready for playing football at the very highest level. St James's Park needed a makeover. It wasn't the best stadium in the country by a long way. But they spent a lot of money and did it very quickly. They erected a, a brand new large grandstand on the Barrack Road side of the ground um, with a bird's eye press box and that would be a one uh, the the version before the the popular main stand barrel vaulted main stand that we we saw for many years um after the after world war one there was also a lady seating area at the back of the stand and there was new changing rooms there was on the other sides of the ground there was new embankments for terracing created and all this created a bit of a problem though because there was lots of objections from the residents uh, nearby on Lisa's Terrace and on St. James's Street. And they didn't want football at all. Um, and they created a problem with the local authority, the, the city council. Uh, they called the, the game of football a nuisance. And they wanted, in effect, they wanted football banned from St. James's Park. And there was a bit of a debate during the summer. Uh, and uh, the council you know, had a meeting uh, and they referred it to the town where committee, which obviously uh, owned the land and, and ran the land. But eventually, of course, uh, uh, nothing happened and the council wouldn't agree to ban football and Newcastle United continued on. Wow. So even back then, the proximity of Leeser's Terrace is preventing Newcastle United from expanding St James's Park, or at least objecting to, to some of the things they're trying to implement. They also made an investment on the field as well, between the sticks. Was goalkeeping a problem position up until now? Yeah, well, for, for several seasons joining the league, there weren't the directors weren't very happy with the, the goalkeeper uh, choices. They had uh, several keepers over the, that period. So they selected, or the, the scouted and selected a player called Matt Kingsley, who was a decent keeper from uh, Darwin, who were a second division club back then. And uh, he joined Newcastle United and became a solid goalkeeper for the next six seasons. And he was Newcastle's, he became Newcastle's first international player. When at the club, he was capped by England in season 1900 to 1901. Yeah, there's a nice feature about Matt Kingsley on Chronicle Live's website that I'll put a link to in the description if anyone wants to do some further reading on Matt. Paul, we talk about the jump from the second tier to the top flight in today's game. What was it like almost 125 years ago? Well, it, it was all all different, of course. Um, we didn't have the, the vast media coverage that we have now, um, although Newcastle United were starting to become a popular side and there was lots of press coverage in the local press and 
in national newspapers now of, of all football games at the top level. So Newcastle joined top clubs like Aston Villa, Derby and Everton and, and Sunderland, of course, as well. The first game in the top division was against Wolves. Uh, there was a much better level of football and the opposition were far better as well. And, and it was noticeable. Uh, United found it hard to begin with. It was 11 games before they brought their first victory. They actually lost the first game 4-2 against Wolves. Uh, but by the time they played Liverpool, uh, they won 3-0 uh, and then got up and running uh, and survived that first season in 13th place. Um, and after that, they gradually improved the following season. They finished in fifth place. As well, your gates were much better because the opposition were much uh, more attractive. Average, The average for that first season in the top division was 17,000. And as a result, finances grew. Good, good. Now, at the time of recording, there's been 156 Tynewea derbies in the league and cups. Newcastle have won 53. Sunderland have won 53. There's been 50 draws. Can you tell us what happened the very first time Newcastle and Sunderland met in the Football League? Well, the, that, that season, 1898-1899, uh, saw the first time where Derby in the Football League. They had played each other, of course, in the past in local uh, competitions and in many friendly games. But this was for the real thing. Um, and the first game was at uh, Roker Park, um, which was a new ground for Sunderland that season. And Sunderland were challenging Aston Villa at the time uh, as the best club in the country. So it was a big game. It was a capacity 25,000 and it took place on Christmas Eve. So it was a very um, big holiday fixture. And uh, Newcastle surprised everyone uh, by winning 3-2. In that capacity crowd, 4,000 Newcastle fans travelled through to Sunderland and it was um, a great day out for them. They saw Jock Peddy, the, the Scottish centre-forward, score two goals and um, Newcastle made a, a, a big shock for that festive game. Very good. I alluded to it in my intro. The Edwardian era was to be fruitful one for Newcastle. They developed big ambitions, didn't they? They were keen to eclipse the success that they'd seen on Wearside at Sunderland. Well, yeah, Sunderland, as I said, it, it started to develop into a, a great side. They, they created the team of all the talents. Uh, they were champions three times uh, at that, at that, in that era, including 1901 to 1902. But Newcastle wanted to uh, uh, match Sunderland uh, and obviously the other clubs the likes of Aston Villa and they started building what, what were called the Edwardian Masters. Um, Newcastle became a very ambitious club and they made several key signings on and off the pitch which started the assembly of one of football's finest ever sides. You know, they were led by Frank Watt who in all and everything but name was managing director and chief executive uh, in modern terms and uh, the directors and what uh, made sure that Newcastle started to uh, develop into a, a top football club. And the club kicked off the 20th century by making a major transfer move, didn't they? What can you tell us about this significant signing? Yeah, at the turn of the century, um, in, in 1900 and 1901, uh, Newcastle made huge strides forward. Uh, they were on a good financial footing with the gates increasing. Um, and they made one of the biggest transfer moves at the time. In Scotland, um, centre-forward called Bob McCall was one of the best in the country, not only in Scotland, but in England too, You know, on, on level with the likes of Steve Bloomer. Um, uh, and he uh, moved from 
being an amateur in Scotland to a professional at St James's Park. It was a it was a huge coup, and his tactical awareness and style of play was a key factor in the building of the next or, or, or the first great Newcastle United side in the next decade. And if any listeners have ever shopped in a McCall's newsagent, there's a link back to Bob there, isn't there? Well, yeah, Bob McCall was a was a, a very interesting character. Apart from being a very talented footballer, um, when he went uh, when he joined Newcastle, uh, he'd already started with his brother Tom McCall to create a business in Glasgow. Um, it started selling uh, or manufacturing and selling uh, uh, sweets and toffees, and it grew into a huge organisation, uh, which eventually. Uh, became became the RS McCall news agency and and uh, confectionery chain, um, and still it is branded in Scotland uh, McCall's, and in England it's uh, been overtaken by other other uh, brand names. But certainly you can go around Scotland and see RS McCall's in most towns and cities, and due to all of that, he's been given the nickname of Toffee Bob because of his uh, um, creation of. Uh, these toffee shops uh, around the country. Very good. So as well as Toffee Bob, who were some of the other stars from this era? Well, over the next decade, there were, there were dozens and dozens of, of players who became household names. But to start with, uh, in, the, in, in these earlier seasons, we had the likes of Andy Aitken, Jack Carr, Alec Gardner, uh, and two local youngsters, uh, Colin Veach and Jackie Rutherford. There were many more to follow, but... Um, you know, the likes of Beach and Rutherford were, were two Geordies who, who really quickly developed into top-class players. Yeah, Jackie Rutherford then, born in Percy, Maine in 1884, was a famously rapid winger, brought through as a youth player, I guess, and he was nicknamed the Newcastle Flyer. He was indeed. He, he joined Newcastle from local club Willington uh, on Tyneside, uh, and, he, and he became a key figure in every single success in that era. He totaled 336 goal, uh, appearances uh, and netted 94 goals from an outside right position, which was quite remarkable. He was fast, uh, an intelligent player who could score lots of goals, uh, became an England regular over the decade, uh, and he had a, a really long career after his 10 years uh, and more with Newcastle. Uh, when he was 30, he joined Arsenal and everybody thought that, well, he'd have another couple of years in Arsenal and that would be it. But he played on for another decade until he was into his 40s. Um, so that was quite an achievement. Uh, he hailed from a large family in Percy, Maine. Uh, there was 12 brothers and sisters and several of those lads uh, played football too. Uh, two or three were on Newcastle's books and, and uh, even his son uh, with Arsenal when Jackie was with Arsenal, when Jackie was with the Gunners in season 1925-1926. So he was quite a special player. Amazing. And his great-grandson went on to become a famous athlete too. Indeed. Uh, Greg Rutherford, uh, he, he appeared in the 2012 Olympics and uh, uh, won a gold medal and also in the 2015 World Championships and he uh, got a bronze medal in 2016 as well. We must mention Colin Veach as well as he is someone who went on to become a significant figure for Newcastle and football in general and local Northeast culture as well, I guess. Yeah, well, he became probably the most famous of all Newcastle's Edwardian masters. He grew up in Biker uh, and, and like Rutherford, 
over the, the coming decade with Newcastle United, became an England international, a very versatile player. Uh, he played in midfield and attack and occasionally fullback uh, um, and, and also scored goals. He totaled 322 games for the club, uh, had a football brain and was one of the United men who you could say managed the side. Remember, this was before club managers. So there was a director's committee, there was Frank Watt, and then uh, a trainer, Jimmy McPherson. But largely it was left to the players to decide how they played and the tactical uh, solution to go with it. And Veach was one of the key members of a small group of the Newcastle players who, who really uh, managed the side over the coming years. Uh, Colin was a man of many talents. He was not just a great footballer. He was a playwright, a musician, a scholar, an actor, a politician, um, and uh, became Players Union chairman as well. After he left Newcastle, um, or played, left playing with Newcastle, he became a coach at St James's Park, and later was a journalist for the Newcastle Chronicle and Journal. Very good. At this stage then, early 20th century, how are things off the field? Are Newcastle as healthy in the boardroom as they seem to be on the pitch? Well, as is Newcastle's way um, over the years, uh, nothing is always straightforward. So in, in 1903 and 1904, there was a bit of a boardroom uh, battle. There was a shuffle and a sort of coup as, uh, as director James Telford was ousted by, um, uh, we reckon, Joe Bell and John Cameron becoming the power behind the scenes at Newcastle United. Now that saw Bob McCall move back to Scotland as he was uh, very much a Telford man. And even though they lost McCall, um, he had already stamped his authority on the side and uh, Newcastle started to uh, play the way, uh, the McCall way, which was a nice, um, attractive passing uh, type of uh, football. Uh, United's new leadership at, in boardroom was a success and they moved forward very quickly thereafter. Mm. So things were starting to progress tactically for Newcastle, for football, and, and Newcastle were almost at the forefront of that. Tell us about what fans were starting to see from the Magpies on the pitch at this stage. Yeah, well, by 1903 and 1904, um, they, they started to display the style that was to follow for the next decade. And it was a, 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 a team that, that became celebrated in football um, in, in the following 100 years. They had a possession-based game and, uh, you know, they passed the ball around in quick uh, movements um, and more and more big stars started to impress. Bill Appleyard joined the club as a centre-forward in place of McCall. Now, he was quite a contrast to many of the players. He was a burly brute of a striker in direct comparison to the many United play playmakers who started to play in the black and white stripes. Uh, players like Peter McWilliam and Jimmy Howie uh, were, were talented and very creative players. There was a new goalkeeper as well, uh, Jimmy Lawrence arrived, and also uh, a world record signing, uh, believe it or not, uh, back then. Uh, a fullback called Andy McCombie arrived from Sunderland for the uh, fee of £700. Amazing. So we've Newcastle have broken the world record transfer fee at least twice, almost 100 years apart. Did Newcastle's first world record sign and help deliver a league championship? Uh, McCombie certainly did help. Uh, he was a very experienced uh, Scottish international 
and at the back, he he certainly made a difference in uh, in the defensive side of the game. Um, Newcastle became league champions uh, for the first time in 1904-05, and they also reached the FA Cup final. So they nearly did the double, and uh, eventually played the final against Aston Villa at a ground which became something of a jinx to Newcastle United at the old National Stadium of the Crystal Palace in Sydenham. United lost 2-0 to Villa in front of a crowd of uh, just over 101,000. Villa sent forward Harry Hampton scored both goals on that occasion. So they lost the cup final, uh, but they had won the league championship in, in some style. Mm. That game then in the old National Stadium in Crystal Palace, that must be the biggest crowd to ever watch a Newcastle United game of all time, the, the, especially the players of, of that era, that was probably at least three times the amount of people they were used to playing in front of. Any idea how many uh, Newcastle fans might have journeyed from the northeast to watch that one? Yeah, well, there was, there's, there's certainly a lot of press coverage on the, on the, the, the cup final, and uh, it's noted that around 10,000 travelled from uh, uh, Tyneside and the northeast to London. Uh, maybe that's not many in modern terms, but you've got to remember that back then, 100 years ago, uh, very few uh, locals travelled out of the northeast. So uh, to, to get 10,000 to head to London uh, was quite a feat. And, you know, they the, the certainly had a, a wonderful time in London, despite the result. Sounds great. Yeah. Um, at this point, are Newcastle regarded as the best club in the country? Could we say that? Well, not quite. No, Um the, they certainly were getting there. Uh, they were recognised as a new force in football, but it, it was certainly the start of the decade of, of a decade of mastery that Newcastle United uh, set forth on. Um, and the very quickly thereafter became England's very best side. It didn't take them very long at all. The, the following season and the seasons that quickly came after that, up to the First World War, uh, there were very few clubs that could match Newcastle United. Mm, so they were on the cusp of something very special. We should mention as well, the season we're finishing on, 1904-05, this was the debut season for a certain Jimmy Lawrence. Yes, it was. He, he came down from Scotland. He was an interesting character, really. Um, uh, one of many Scots that played for the, the club uh, in the 1900s and 1920s. Like many footballers before the, the two wars, um, he, he fibbed about his age to prolong his career uh, or earn a contract. Um, Newcastle United thought he was six years younger than he actually was when he joined <laughs> the club. Back then, it wasn't as easy to check birth dates and there was uh, no passports sort of thing and, and birth certificates weren't readily available. So he came down with a few fibs, uh, but he became a regular keeper for the next 14 seasons um, and uh, created a record appearance level of 507 games including a few wartime games he was capped once for scotland uh, and he was one of the the, the close-knit community of newcastle players uh, who decided what happened on the field he was a tactician as well for a goalkeeper and like colin beach uh, very much a union activist uh, when the players union was just being created and and fought a few battles with the authorities um, he was another to be be the players' union chairman. Yeah, another great character to have played for the club. Great to hear about Jimmy and his uh, his age issues. It's very good. Uh, bit of bonus content then, Paul, to finish with for people who are watching on YouTube. We've got the image here that's taken from the 1905 FA Cup final. 
can you talk us through what we can see here on our on our screen here on YouTube? Yeah, well, this this team group was, uh, or the the lineup for the cup final was was taken just before kickoff, uh, and photographers back then uh, were very creative in in uh, producing images, and they got the full side to just stand in the goal mouth uh, with the trainer Jimmy McPherson and uh, Frank Watt uh, sporting a lovely uh, flower in his lapel. Um, in the background, you can see a huge crowd, part of that 101,000. And you can also see the, the trees which surrounded the, the football arena at the Crystal Palace. Now, that Crystal Palace parkland was quite an attraction in London. And when Newcastle fans went down there, they not only saw, you know, witnessed the, the, the great palace itself, which dominated the area, there was a huge ground uh, parkland around the football ground as well. And there was attractions, there was a fairground, there was a picnic area, uh, there was gardens, and they spent, you know, by the time they got there, they spent hours in, in the grounds and then saw the football ground as well, uh, saw the football match, uh, uh, albeit that Newcastle lost. But they were going to go back very quickly uh, and have another try at the Crystal Palace. Yeah, I'll just describe the image for people who are listening rather than watching on YouTube. It's the Bear 11, minutes before kickoff, I think. Uh, the trainer, uh, they're, they're standing on the goal line. The crossbar looks a lot higher than regulation, uh, I will say that. And we've got Frank Watt there in a three-piece suit, bowler hat, proud um, secretary of the club, and then the burly Bill Appleyard, who looks really, really heavy set, scary, scary guy. Jimmy Lawrence is in a black and white shirt as well, as goalkeepers wore the same kit as the outfield players and he's got a cap on and then all the players look a bit nervous really probably the the biggest game of their lives and uh colin veach there in the middle with with the ball at his feet it's a brilliant image and we'll share it on our website so uh you can enjoy it there as well that's 1898 to 1905 covered paul newcastle have gone from promotion newbies to one of the best teams in the country all in the space of seven years but the campaign ended in disappointment with defeat in the season showpiece, the FA Cup final. But don't worry, there's a lot more to come from this team, as we'll discover in the next episode, which is going to cover the 1908-1909 season, Newcastle's third league championship win in five years. Can you imagine? Thanks, Paul, as ever, for your insight. Listeners, please subscribe to the Everything is Black and White podcast via whichever podcast platform you use. Follow Chronicle Live's Newcastle United channels on social media. We're at Chronicle NUFC on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And keep an eye out for new episodes of Chronicle, the history of Newcastle United, every week. If you have a, quick, a history question about Newcastle United, we have the perfect person here to answer them. Uh, email those questions to us uh, at the EIBW podcast at reachplc.com. I'll pick out some of the best future shows and we'll put them to Paul and see if he can answer them. Lastly, stay up to date with everything black and white by subscribing to our daily Newcastle United newsletter. It's free. You get a morning news roundup, an evening news roundup and breaking news as and when it happens directly emailed to your inbox. The link is in the show notes. Hit that, scroll down to Sport, Newcastle United updates, tick the box and you'll be signed up. Thanks so much for listening to Chronicled, the history of Newcastle United with me, Matt Ketchell and Paul Joanne.